0: Jericho has been destroyed. Ai has been destroyed. The Israelites have learnt how destructive sin can be once it is is allowed into the camp. They've also discovered that God is a God of restoration. So whether it's our first offence or our 700th, 192nd offence Jesus is there to get us back On our feet again, that's what we learnt Last week, God is all about Restoring us, and last week We learnt that in order for this to happen uh, We need to do four things We need to not be afraid Because God is with us um, We also need, number two, to learn From our failures uh, We need to, number three we, we need to get up, to arise And to, and to go on the attack Once again And number four, we need to follow God's word, God's revelation. And as we do this, we find out that there is life after sin, no matter how dark the sin is, and how many times we have done that sin, there is life after sin. Now, today what I want is to give you an overview of what happens in Joshua chapter 9. And most of of Joshua chapter 10. And as we walk through Joshua, Joshua 9 and 10, I'm going to draw out a couple of points that need explanation. And then at the end, I want to leave us considering what might be the impact of a life that's lived by sight instead of faith, and how God can bring redemption into a life that is lived by sight and not by faith. But first, let's have a look at the overview. And I'm And I won't read through, instead I will summarize, but feel free to read along as I summarize, starting at chapter 9, verse 1. So the rubble of Ai and Jericho is there in the background, and now the Israelites are are moving their incursion even further deeper into Canaan. And as they move deeper into Canaanite land, Joshua 9 tells us that five kings created some sort of a coalition to really oppose the Israelites. And that's one way to respond, to meet force with force. However, another tribe known as the Gibeonites chose a different response. They created a ruse. They are sneaky, they are clever, and it's hard not to admire them. Because what they do is they pretend that they're not locals, but they've actually come from far, far away. And so they give themselves that kind of worn in and worn out look like they've been on the road for ages. Uh, they load up their donkeys with old sacks and aged wineskins and they meet with the Israelites in order to make a deal with them. So a little bit of um, history here. Earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 20, God had instructed the Israelites that, that, that if they... Uh, that, that how the Israelites were to deal with the faraway cities is that they were to be given the option of surrender. And this peace offer would spare the lives of that city and in response the conquered people would serve serve the Israelites. And this was normal practice of warfare at that time. So the Gibeonites put on their best... Um, Mask of people who've been travelling for a long time, and they ask the Israelites for mercy. And so, in my mind's eye, you know, I can imagine them scrabbling around the city, trying to find old food rotting in corners and old clothes falling, falling apart in the cupboards. Then they load up their animals and they go to meet Joshua. Now, at the start, the Israelites are suspicious. As we read in verse 7 of chapter 9, it says, but perhaps you live near us, so how can we make a treaty with you? So they're suspicious. And so they grill this mystery tribe again, because at that moment they don't know that, that they are the Gibeonites. And so they say, who are you in verse 8, and where, where do you come from? And the answer of the Gibeonites is in verse 9, where they say, your servants um have come from a very distant country because of the fame and uh because of the fame of the Lord your God uh, you know and then they say something like so we've heard these reports of all that he's done and our elders said go and make a treaty with the israelites look at how moldy our bread is look at how dry our our wine bottles our water bottles are um look how rough we look we've obviously been traveling for ages for reals so please believe us and so they laid on this ruse, but then how does Joshua respond? Well, verse 14 shows us. It says, it says in verse 14, The Israelites sampled their provisions, but they did not inquire of the Lord. Um, then, then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. So in sampling their provisions the members of the Israelite tribe showed that they were wise, that they weren't just going to take their, their, their word for it. They tested the, the authenticity of the claim of the Gibeonites. But then it goes on and it says, yet they failed to inquire of the Lord. They did not bring this before him. And what this means is that if they had, is that God would have revealed this ruse to them and that he'd have shown them what's actually going on. But like Ai, Ai, they once again move on without consulting God. And so and so, as a result of this, he spares the members of the Gibeonite tribe. And what Joshua is trying to do is he's trying to do the right thing, but he's not doing it in the right way. And when reading the Bible... Like, I'm not sure about you, but me, I get sometimes frustrated with these people that never seem to learn. You would have thought that after conducting 36 military funerals for the soldiers who died at the hands of the AI army, you'd have thought that the Israelites would now have learned their lesson to inquire of God, to seek him, to ask him for his opinion. But they don't, and that frustrates me. But that's one reason why I love the Bible, because it shows the people of God for who they are, that they're human. And I guess the reason why that encourages me is that when I look in the mirror, I see an idiot who forgets a lesson pretty much as soon as I've learnt it, just like the members of the Israelite tribe. So... It then takes them three days for them to realize that they've been royally and absolutely had. And after collectively slapping themselves on their foreheads, they send, then, then send out a group over to the Gibeonites. And uh, then they, are, they have a meeting, and this tribe explains why they've lied. And in short, it was a choice between lying and not dying, or telling the truth and probably dying. So they lied and they got Joshua to make an oath based on that lie and they got to see to live to see another day. And I can't fault them for this um, because we'd have probably done the same if we were in their situation. So the members of the Israelite tribe are angry at their leaders because they spared these, these people who are their enemies. But the leaders explain their rationale in verse 19 of chapter 9 where it says... Um, where the leaders answered, we have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. Then in chapter 10, things heat up even more. There's this guy called Adonai Zedek, who is, who is, the, king of, who, who is the king of Jerusalem, which is still a Canaanite city. He hears that Ai has been ruined, and he hears that the, the, the members of the, of the Gibeonites have made a treaty. So he gets nervous since since this tribe is a major tribe with a, with a fighting force full of kind of like navy seals. And so he's afraid that if the Israelites are combined with, with this tribe that are super impressive, super strong, and super powerful, that things will go really bad for them. So he makes, he, he makes a coalition with four other kings, and they attack the, the, the Gibeonites. Now, When they hear that this is happening, they send a word over to their new overlord, and they say, help, we're being attacked. And this really shows the integrity of Joshua, because he actually goes up and he helps them. He gets his army there under a forced nighttime march. They're they're marching hard. All night, he risks his people, in short, he risks his people for a bunch of liars. And then it says in chapter 10, verse 9, that Joshua took the coalition army led by Adonai Zedek by surprise. Joshua took them by surprise. And right at this moment, even before we can blink, suddenly the focus shifts from Joshua over to God. As if we're being reminded that this is not a human battle but this is God's war. And it says that the Lord threw them into confusion. And so the coalition is actually defeated and the survivors are, are, are they're, they're left on the run. But as they're running, God starts throwing down hailstones on them, which results in more of them really dying from that than at the hands of the Israelite army. So this is the battle of the Lord, clearly. And then after that, something crazy happens. Out of nowhere, Joshua says in chapter, uh, chapter 12 of verse 10, he says this, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and you, moon, over the valley of Aijalon." And then in verse 13 of chapter 10, it says this, So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as is written in the, written in the book of Jehoshar. We don't know what that is, we don't know who, who that is, but it's written there. And here we pause for a moment, like we should, because what we're reading is pretty out there. The sun stood still. Only, of course, the sun did not stand still. Because... Saying the sun stood still is like us saying that the sun sets and the sun rises. The sun doesn't set. The sun doesn't rise. The sun stays where it is. The earth turns, right? So we say sunset and and sunrise, but that's not actually what happens. just the same as here. It says the sun stood still. It looked like the sun stood still, but what actually happened is that the earth stopped turning. So what would have needed, or what would have needed, um, or what would have happened if this had happened like is written here. Now, I'm not an astronomer, but listen to what Dr. Sten Odenwald from NASA said when he answered the question, what would happen if the Earth stopped spinning? He says this, if the Earth stopped spinning suddenly, then the atmosphere would still be in motion with the Earth's original 1,100 mile per hour rotation speed, which is measured at the equator. All of the land masses would be scoured clear of anything not attached onto the bedrock. This means rock, topsoil, trees, buildings, your dog, and so on. All these would be swept away into the atmosphere. And there's another source who who tried to explain what would happen if the earth stopped spinning right at this moment right now. He says you would fly east like a discombobulated mass of muscle and bone at an incredible speed, 465 meters per second if you're near the equator. But if you're near San Francisco, it's a little less bad. It's only 368 meters per second. Um, he says that people around, near very near the poles may survive, but only at first. People on planes may survive for the first few seconds, only to be killed by the gigantic storms that would ensue right after that stop point. And so the speed of the wind, which is faster than the blast of an atomic bomb, would be so high that it would instantly start fires all around the planet. And the wind would also call unprecedented erosion to anything actually part of Earth's crust. And the oceans would Rise as gigantic tsunamis and all water would move towards the poles. So, this all sounds pretty extreme. All to help a bunch of people fight a battle. So, the question is this Did the sun really stop for a day? Now, some people say it was a solar eclipse. Some say that the author is using license as if he's saying, Well, you know, in that one span of day, they did so much that it was as if they had an, a whole extra day. But let me not answer that, whether it actually happened yet. Let's first wrestle with another question Why would the sun being up for extra long be an advantage to the Israelites? Now, some say that the sun and the moon being visible on each horizon would have been a bad omen for the members of the Gibeonite army, and so it would have left them really demoralized. You know, it would have been a bad sign, a bad. a really bad portent. Or maybe it just meant that they had more time you know, to fight and to win. Um, now there's this guy called Bruce Waltke who suggests this, that as the, that as the members of the Gibeonite army moved upslope, walked upslope from the west, they would have had the bright sun in their eyes, which would have meant that the members of the Israelite army fighting downslope from the other way would have had an advantage. But for me, I can't help but think about the rest of the people in the world who had their day screwed up by this one army. You know, you know, so you'd have had people on the other side of the world who were working the night shift, who wondered, why is my night shift not ending? Why is the sun not rising yet? And then there were others maybe who went on holiday in order to catch some rays, realizing that they should probably have left the sun cream back at home. And so these are all questions To which the the Bible gives no answer at all, because the focus is purely on the battle. So, my question was, could the sun stop in the middle of the day, in the middle of the sky, and stop going down for a whole day? Or rather, could God stop the earth spinning on its axis without any catastrophic results for the rest of the world? And the answer is yes. It has to be yes. Is that if God created the heavens and the earth, that he can do anything. That, if God, that if, if God then tells the wind and the waves to stop, and they stop, then he could stop the wind and the waves from wiping out life on earth if the earth was to suddenly stop. So whether this was an astronomical event like an eclipse that God leveraged for the benefit of his people, or whether it was a turn of phrase that expressed how much they got done in one day, or whether this was a full-on, real McCoy, miraculous stop to the earth's spin without ruining the rest of the planet, what's clear is that Joshua chapter 10, verse 14 says this, that there has never been, that there has never been a day like it before or since... A day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. So whatever happened? It was a miracle and it was God's fault. So moving on. These five kings who led this army, they're hiding out in a cave. And and this news makes its way back over to General Joshua. Who tells his people to lock them into the cave using really big stones. Um, after fighting the army, after winning the army, um, they then bring out these five kings and all of the commanders of the, of the Israelites they kind of put their feet on the necks of these five kings um, as a sign that they've won and, uh, and then in verse 25 of 10 it says this, do not be afraid which, it, which we've heard over and over again it's this theme that keeps coming back, do not be afraid or discouraged, be strong and <coughs> courageous, this is what the Lord will do to all the enemies, you are you were going to fight. And the kings are then executed, and the bodies are hanged on five poles until evening, as is the custom. End of summary. So threaded through Joshua chapter 9 and 10 are these repeated reminders that the battle is the Lord's. Yes, he involves the people, but it's his And we are reminded of this: uh, some sort of attention, or you know, you know, is that we do our work, but God does His work. But when we talk about doing our work with God, we need to understand this: that we are not equal partners. We we are not each bringing 50% of labour. It's more like a little child walking up to his father and saying, can I help you clean the car? And father says, yes, of course. And then he gives his son a rag to clean with. Now, the father isn't thrilled because suddenly his work has been cut in half. But the, but the father is thrilled because the son wants to be part of the work. And yes, the son can only reach the wheel rim. And yes, the son gets in the way. And yes, it would have been much faster if Dad was left to finish it all, all, all on its own. But here's the truth: is that God is pleased when we choose to lend a hand. And so in the middle so in this example of the Israelites, God is thrilled that, that his people are mobilized in, in um, wiping out evil in this land. But God's not relying on His people. He's not wiping His brow, thankful that someone has finally stepped in to remove the load from His shoulders. He's thrilled to use His people, but God is the major player. And we see this uh, in chapter ten, verse ten, where where it says, "This the Lord threw them into confusion before Israel, so Joshua and the Israelites defeated them." Okay, but it's God who throws them uh, th- throws them in, in throws them into confusion. It's God who does the heavy lifting, but the Israelites help. And then just one sentence later, we read this. We read Israel Israel pursued them, and they cut them down. And then it says, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them, and more of them died from the hail than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. Once again, God is the main actor in this. And just a short while later, it's, it's a human being who says, Son, stand still but it is God listening to the human being who makes it happen. And so if we were to sum up what is this relationship of work between God and the humans that serve him, we would read this in verse 14 where it says this, surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. It is God who is doing the heavy lifting. So if God is doing most of the work, can God's plans be upset when his people don't do what they're supposed to do? Because if there's anything that we've learned so far from the Israelites, it's that they get it wrong more often than they get it right. They act like a toddler who's rubbing mud on the car instead of soapy water. And so the question is, when we are disobedient. Can we upset God's sovereign plans? When we walk by sight instead of faith, can we mess things up for God? Now, the, the, the Lord's um, mandate was, was to clear the land of the inhabitants. God wanted to replace this systemic evil in the land with his own kingdom. But now Joshua has gone and made a covenant with some of the with some of the inhabitants of this land, who are Canaanites, who are worshippers of Moloch, who are sacrificers of children, who are really deviant in many, many ways, that they, they're still part of this culture that was so far gone that God had judged that there was no hope, that there was to be no mercy, I guess. And so, what what Joshua's mistake was when he met this these people from from from. from um, from the Canaanites, was that he did not seek God. He did not inquire of God, as, as verse 14 in chapter 9 uh, tells us. He chose to walk by sight instead of faith. He relied purely on what his senses told him, that they looked like they'd been on the road, that they smelled, that the food was old and moldy, and his own intuition, instead of saying, God, what's actually going on here? So our first point is, is, is this, is that when we walk purely by sight and not by faith, we generally mess up because we're shutting the door on the greatest source of wisdom that we will ever know. We are slamming the phone down on our greatest resource of insight, guidance, and truth. And when we do that, when we shut the door on God, what we're left with is our own limited intuition, our own tiny insight, our own measly gray cells, and nothing more. And so Joshua is walking by sight not by faith. He didn't seek God. And we make the same mistake when we don't immerse ourselves in the written word of God and allow God through it to lead us and to guide us. Now, we might not be leading a nation like him, but we have our own little nation, whether it's our families, our friendship circles, our grandkids, our church, our grow groups. We might not be trying to Negotiate an international treaty, but we all have have our daily, weekly and our monthly um, things th- that we have to choose F- like which exact, which activities are my kids going to be involved in? How, how am I going to spend my paycheck Where, where are we going to take our holidays this year? What exercise am I going to be involved with? What are my goals for the, for, the, for this year? Should I ask for that? promotion, um, what what maintenance jobs am I going to do on the house this year, what school am I going to enroll my kids in, should I stay in my job or should I look for a job change and all of these choices we can either make alone or we can inquire of the Lord, we can ask, we can listen and we can obey, we can tap into that treasury of eternal wisdom trusting that God loves us and that he loves leading us or which means that we can walk by faith or we can be like Joshua here and just try to figure it out on our own. We can walk by, by sight. And I found that recently on Netflix. Movies that I would never, ever, ever, ever rent in a million years are there on my screen. And all it takes is one click. So should I use my own, own, own intuition in choosing movies? Or should I inquire of the Lord? Now, I was watching a movie on Friday night. And I should have shut it off. But I justified and I watched. It had been a really busy day. I was tired. I'd worked really hard. Um, It was funny. I reasoned. So I excused it. In the end, I chose to, to switch it off but I should have done so earlier I should have been listening to my conscience saying that this is not okay I needed to walk by faith to ask the Lord instead of walking by sight so we know that walking by, by sight is easy to do when we cut God out of our decision making all it needs is us to simply forget to include him in the process we don't have to do any extra work not to include God in the process we, we just have to cut him out but what were the consequences of Joshua walking by sight instead of faith well first there were the consequences that happened right there and then is that the members of the Israelite tribe were drawn into this into a dangerous battle to save people who they were brought into an into an allied situation with through lies but there were further consequences with far reaching Implications, consequences that took 300 years in order to come to the surface in the most horrific way. So let's fast forward to the time of Saul. Now, Saul was of the tribe of uh, the tribe of Benjamin, but incidentally, Saul's great grandfather was also a member of the Gibeonite tribe. So this was the situation: the members of the Gibeonite tribe were living in land that was originally assigned to the members of the Benjamite tribe. And so with racial hatred probably fueling him, Saul attacks a group of, of this tribe, and he slaughters them. And we read this in 2 Samuel chapter 2 verse 21. And what happens as a result of this outrage is that there's a famine that happens for three years. And then when seeking God to ask why this famine is happening, God then tells King David that the reason for this Drought is Saul's massacre of the Gibeonites and so He then goes up to the Gibeonites and says How can I make this right And they say in order to make this right Again blood has to be spilt Seven of Saul's descendants have to Be killed it's a blood feud It's ugly and this blood feud Found its origins with Joshua Not inquiring of the Lord 300 years earlier So my, my thought is that there was a lot of ill feeling between the members of the Benjamin uh, tribe and the members of the Gibeonite tribe. And then as one generation moved on, that uh, this tension got entrenched, and 300 years later, this ethnic tension now spills over into revenge killing and and. You know, and we've seen this in the, in modern times, right? With the uh, Hutus and the Tutsis of, of Rwanda, with the Balkan conflict, with the Catholics and the Protestants in, in Ireland. We see this happening, and if we're honest, we can still see it sometimes happening in our own province, with our neighbouring province. That that ethnic tension can sometimes be there, but it took a man of God seeking the face of the Lord to start to undo the harm and the damage that a man of God had done earlier in not seeking the face of the Lord. And so the consequences of choosing to walk by sight rather than faith can be far-reaching. And, these re- and, uh, and, and the reverberations could continue long after we die. So when we rely on our own instincts, on our own senses, we get ourselves into trouble and Saul shows us what, what trouble walking by sight can lead, lead us into. But finally, we need to jump 500 years after this massacre into the time of Nehemiah to find out that there is re- redemption. And this image of restoration is really good for us because, because this moment of grace, this moment of hope, this moment of restoration takes place on the ruined walls, ruined walls of Jerusalem as they're being rebuilt. Now, remember back in Joshua chapter 10 that Jerusalem was still under Canaanite control. Now a whole era has happened, hundreds of years. This nation, Canada, has existed for 150 years. We're talking in the Bible about 800 years have happened since, since the time of Joshua. Joshua. So the walls of Jerusalem have been torn down. Uh, the, the Israelites have been taken into exile. One, um, one world power has, has been replaced by another world power. And eventually a small group of Israelites were allowed by the, by the Persian king to return to rebuild the walls of the city. And in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17, Nehemiah encourages the groups of the builders by saying this. You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burnt with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. And so as the building of these walls takes place, the honor of God's people is also being rebuilt at the same time. And who do we see on that wall, shoulder to shoulder, with the Israelites, rebuilding the wall with them, restoring their honor, re- removing their shame. Chapter 3, verse 6 of Nehemiah says this. The Jashana gate was was repaired by Joyada, son of Paseah, and Meshullam son of uh, Besodiah. They laid its beams and put its doors with, it, with their bolts and bars in place. Next to them, verse 7, repairs were being made by men From Gibeon and Mizpah, Melatiah of Gibeon. So as this city is being rebuilt, what do we see? We see the Gibeonites being represented. Restoration is happening. What Joshua's lack of faith and Saul's ethnic hatred made worse 300 years later is now being undone by a man called Melatiah who's a Gibeonite, 500 years later. A man who's thrown his lot in with, with, with the people of Israel. A man who spiritually has become an Israelite, a worshipper of God, a restorer of honor. Now, earlier on in the sermon, I explained that Joshua 9 and 10 are all about this being, being God's battle. And yes, he allows humans to help, but God is the mover and the shaker. He's the sun stopper. He's the hailstone thrower. And I asked the question, can we put um, God's plans into jeopardy if we go our own way instead of his if we walk by sight and not by faith? Now, what happened because of this one person walking by sight and not, and not by faith is that there were generations of racial tension and wars that happened which resulted in Saul's massacre And what this shows us is that our decisions in this moment cannot be taken lightly. Our decisions have consequences, and they may be real-time consequences, or they may poison our families literally for generations to come. When we choose to walk by sight and not faith, we only have our own headspace. We only have our own nous. God is excluded from the process. But what Nehemiah shows us is that God has the last word. Our sun-stopping God has the last word. 800 years after this lie first happened and this treaty was first signed, that the last word is Melatiah repairing what has been torn down and left in ruins. And what this shows us is that God can redeem the mistakes made by our ancestors, by our parents, by our grandparents In Christ, all of our faithless decisions can be redeemed. Yes, the consequences for our sins and our choices are real, but hope has the last word. Restoration has the last word when we walk by faith in the Son of God. When God stopped the Son for one day, that was a miracle because it led to an incredible victory. But an infinitely bigger miracle took took place when God stopped his own son for three days. When Jesus was dead there in the tomb, when his breathing stopped, when his heartbeat stopped, the son stopped for three days. But then three days later, that son rose again. And what this shows us and where our hope comes from is that if you put your faith in him, then you can know the freedom and redemption and hope of a life walked by faith and not by sight. So my question for you today is, are you like maybe Joshua who has or who is about to make a foolish mistake? Are you you walking by sight and not by faith? Are you relying on your own intuition and insight, hoping it all works out in the end? My word for you is to stop, is to it's, it's, it's to inquire of the Lord, is to include Him, is to ask Him, Or are you maybe like a David who's facing the reality of years of retaliation and grudge? Are you looking at the mess of, of broken relationships, of bruised pride and words that can never be left unsaid or, or are never able to be unsaid? If this is you, then my word to you is seek the face of the Lord. Let him lead you. Let him guide you. Or are you a melatire? Proof that God's redemption spans space and time and race. Proof that God can use the most unlikely person to restore, to redeem, to heal. In Christ, God has done all of the work, He did all the heavy lifting. But he invites us to come alongside him like a toddler, helping his father clean the car and do our bit. Let me close with the words of one writer as the worship team comes up. In a real way, things are worse than you ever thought they might be. Let me say that again. In a real way, things are worse than you ever thought they might be. But God's grace is greater than you could ever have imagined it would be. Faith, as is as revealed in the Bible, lives at the intersection of shocking honesty and glorious hope. Faith, as is revealed in the Bible, lives at the intersection of shocking honesty and glorious hope.